0: Looking up from underneath, fractured moonlight on the sea, reflections still look the same to me, as before I went under, and it's peaceful in the deep. Hello and welcome to Roses Radio, Voices Saving Lives. This podcast is presented by Roses in the Ocean, an Australian-based national not-for-profit that's been founded in order to change the way suicide is spoken about, understood and prevented. We hope that by presenting lived experience stories along with the insights and wisdom of the courageous people who share them, we will help to dispel some of the myths about suicide Improving the suicide literacy of our communities and contributing to reducing the fear, discrimination and judgment that sadly still inhibits our ability to support others and seek help. At Roses in the Ocean, we believe that most suicides are preventable and we need to be able to openly speak about suicide. So please, open your hearts and minds to the possibilities that a deeper understanding of suicide can bring to saving lives. Hello folks, wherever you are, welcome to Roses Radio. I'm Lane Stratton, I'm bringing you this podcast today. If you know about the construction industry, well, you know how tough you need to be to be the project manager of one of the biggest infrastructure projects ever built in Victoria. You have to be smart, you have to be unbreakable, you really do need to be a man's man. And this is our next guest. Or was he? On the surface, this is the image, but underneath, things were so much different. His story is that of a man who was slowly unravelling, and we're privileged to have him tell his story to us here at Rose's Radio. Have a listen to our next guest. His name is Graham. Hi, folks, this is Lane, and welcome to Roses Radio. Today we're talking to Graham. Graham, great to have you as part of Roses Radio today, mate. Uh, pleasure to be here. Mate, your story starts with depression. When did depression first find its way into your life?
1: Depression snuck up on me
0: uh, uh, in my middle ages, or
1: getting on a bit. I had uh, the last couple of projects I worked on, I was a project director of large very large construction projects. And in the last couple of them, I noticed there was a change in my approach. Uh, I was most less collegiate, uh, working with a group more uh, angry, uh, more likely to cause uh, disputes rather than solve disputes, and it scared me a bit. So, uh, And, and it, it came in... in in layers. It didn't It didn't sort of wake up one day and there it was. It grew over time. It probably was six months, almost a year, that I noticed the changes. But I really knew there was something wrong uh, when I became unreliable. I'd tell people I was on site. In reality, I was
0: home, struggling to get out of bed. Uh, so you began I, to hide some of the symptoms of your depression and some of the behaviours that were attached to that?
1: Yeah, rather than hide the symptoms uh, of avoiding the fact that these changes were happening and not knowing what they were. Uh, so, you know, trying to over, overcome the differences,
0: not understanding that they were slowly becoming very early. Had people pointed it out to you? Had, had people said to you, hey, Graham, we think this, that you're changing in some way or there's, there's something going on, something wrong?
1: A couple, a couple had, uh, but, but no one had made, made a, a big point of it. The ones closest to me that I work with Said I was getting a bit grumpy and stuff like that, but uh, but yeah, n- n- no one had taken me aside and said, Graham, uh, you know, we've noticed some serious changes with you. The first to notice the serious changes was in fact my GP. Uh, I went to see him about some other matter.
0: So you didn't me. go to see your GP about your mental health?
1: No, I went to see him on, on, on another matter, and he said in, in that consultation, he said something wrong with you, mate. You, you know, you're not your usual cheeky self. You've you have you have me any puns or, or had a crack at me, and just then I said, "Well, you know, I'm not feeling all that flash." And so we, we organised to have a, another appointment, a, a longer one, and and I first time I opened up about it that you know I, yeah I, I felt like I wasn't my normal self. He was the first to point it out, and uh, he he then suggested a good psychiatrist, uh, and I went there, and all of a sudden it became clear, and after a while. The diagnosis was very clear, you know, I was suffering from serious depression.
0: It does show how important it is for um, our GPs to recognise some of those symptoms. I mean, that started the road to recovery for you, but imagine if he hadn't um, pointed that out or hadn't had the intuition to say, Graham, I think there's something not right, then maybe the recovery process might not have started. Uh, Yes, I think about that a
1: lot. Uh, I wasn't uh, I encourage people when they're, when they're feeling like I was to go and talk to their GP but I didn't do that myself. Mm. I encourage people to go early, I didn't go early. Uh, it, it it was well and truly developed by the time. I got there, but I didn't actually go. He found it. Now I was lucky because I had a long relationship with him. 25 years he'd been my GP. Uh, we were actually good friends. We did something socially in other organisations. So he was he was aware of my
0: my personality outside the GP. And depression had never occurred in your life before. It wasn't part of your family. It wasn't something that was maybe hereditary. Or it was literally uh, a, a stress-induced depression. Do you think? Um, th- that's hard to know. Uh, first of all, because you know,
1: my parents uh, would may have, but would have never been diagnosed. Uh, there was no suicide in, in my family. Uh, and with myself, there was two or three incidents in my youth, in my middle career, where my behaviour was erratic, uh, where uh, uh, I lost my my personality changed. Uh, I lost my sort of friendliness and openness. Uh, I look back now because I've been married twice. At the end of my my first marriage, uh, angry all the time, drinking too much. Uh, so that may have been. Part of the demise of the first marriage.
0: You're also part of the construction industry, which was a notoriously, you know, hard living, tough environment, wasn't it? I mean, you, to survive in construction, particularly in project management and site management, you had to be a bit of a hard ass, didn't you?
1: Yeah, yeah, very much so. As a very masculine environment. Uh, and, and at, at the levels that I worked, uh, it, it, it was tough. It, it, it was almost brutal because uh, to make things happen at that sort of speed and that sort of scale, uh, you do. I was, my management style was on the other side of that. There, there, there were people who would come into a room, the table and scream at people, you're incompetent, you're useless, how do you get that wrong? Belittle them in front of everyone else and think that that can make things happen. Where my approach was when we first started a very large job, I'd sit around with all the leaders of of the consultancy team and other people involved and say, look, this is a big Uh, one-off. We're we're building something that's never been built before. We build it with standard elements, but they've never been put together in the same way. And we're going to run fast. So somewhere along the way, there's going to be a mistake. Someone's going to cock up. Uh, and what we wanted is be able to put our hand up, put our hand up early all get together as a team and solve the problem because everything's soluble. And the worse that can happen, a bit longer costs a bit more. And that style worked extremely well. wasn't mm-hmm. commonly used, but we ended up with really strong teams, good, good camaraderie amongst them, uh, and we could run harder and faster than the, the people that yeah. yelled at each other. That's where I changed. I ended up being just like the management style of the people that I despise most in the
0: industry. As, you, as you're talking about that, I'm, I'm kind of almost imagining that what you're talking about is a metaphor for life, isn't it? Wouldn't it be great if we sat around with the people that were important to us and put our hand up and said, somewhere along the track here, I'm going to go off the rails. I'm here. I'm going to, I'm going to make a mistake. And I need to acknowledge that and I need to put my hand up and I need to say, you know, we all need to work together in order for us to you know, correct whatever it is that's happening. But as men, we often don't do that, do we? We kind of internalise that a lot.
1: Yeah, it's a story about going early too because we would have people that come up and say, look, we think that this might not be working the way we thought it was going to be. So there's an alarm bell goes off and, and, and the whole team comes around it and analyses the problem and they go and check it. and And if it was right, then we find ways of mediating it at an early stage. We do not wait for something to collapse or fall down and say, gee, that was Mm, was wrong. mm. Uh, And uh, I I worked for five years on the Crown Casino, which was the largest building project uh, ever in Australia, bigger than the Parliament House. And it was done in a timescale that no one could quite believe. And it had lots of changes through it. I mean, it ended up 50% bigger than what it was originally going to be. (laughs) Uh, So we had to be able to to run hard, uh, accept change, deal for change fairly quickly, uh, but also make sure we had a quality product. At the end of the day, uh, you can say a lot about Crown Casino, but the quality of the building is outstanding.
0: Yeah. So your GP um, acknowledges that there's something that, uh, you know, he needs to explore a little bit more, and, and you at that point open yourself up to potentially being a bit vulnerable and say, yeah, you know, I'm actually not coping. You said that he then sent you off to a psychiatrist, and how did that go for you? Uh, it, it went very well. I,
1: I formed, a, formed a good relationship with him, I and mean, it's 14 years on now, and I still have a relationship. Still use the same one. Um, we, we, I took some time off, uh, and I went uh, into into care. So I, I went into a private institution for a while. Uh, how long were you in there for? Uh, they all get a bit fuzzy because I've been there so often now, I think a, a couple of weeks. Mm. And it was really trying to find uh, a regime of treatment, of, 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 of drugs,
0: if, if that was it, uh, that, that could settle me down. Uh, were you resistant to that or were you really open to that? Because a lot of people kind of would, there's, I, I think stigma attached to going into a place like that to get that sort of help. and. Yeah, that's what we need at times when we're at risk. How, how did you feel about that at the time? Um,
1: I was a bit of both. I was happy to go in there and try it because I was willing to try anything to get the old self back again, but I didn't do it openly. Uh, I took the time off without telling people why I was taking the time off. Uh, I didn't make uh, anyone outside of my direct family aware of, of that's where I was, that's what I was doing.
0: And the reason for that was was what? A uh, reason for
1: that was was that it wasn't well treated. Uh, I had seen other people lose their jobs uh, okay putting their hand up. Uh, in fact, the end story for me was I lost my job because um, of mental health and because of depression. Of mental health, yes. Right. Um, on uh, another, on one of the large last large projects I was working on, uh, we had a client who was, a, I think, at best, to be called a rogue client. Uh, they were doing things that they they shouldn't, it wasn't helping the process. And and I I went and confronted them, or he, it was a single person. Now, in my old days, I would have got my politics right, I would have had a team behind me that supported what I said, we would have had all the ways out covered, uh, and the message would have been given in a logical way. As it was, uh, I'm not quite sure what I said to him, but it had an effect because I went back to my desk and there was a message, uh, clean your desk, be out of here in two hours, uh, your contract's just been out of And because I wasn't well enough, I didn't fight it. I actually accepted it and went out. People say to me now, why did you let him get away with it? I think in this day and age, you couldn't do it. But then, yeah, and it, it was a huge trigger to, to my suicidal thoughts and, and falling deeper into depression. Initially, I thought... Nah, new experience, never been sacked before, a slight misjudgment on my part, you know, I'd keep going. But in reality, it absolutely gutted me and it reinforced all the negative uh, internal thoughts that I'd been having and uh, the volume went up on those 100%. Yeah,
0: it often happens, doesn't it, where the stigma that someone else attaches to you becomes a self-stigma that you actually begin to apply to yourself so you begin to think that you're, you know, you're a failure or that you're useless or it's all those negative thought it processes well, begin that, to emerge.
1: That, that, that came, uh, developed uh, over the last couple of projects I worked with. Sometimes i go and sit in the office and all I could think was, you're useless, you're a fraud, you're going to get caught out, you're no good at what you're doing, but you rely on everyone else. Uh, you know, it makes you look good, but you absolutely... And on and on and on, and on and it would go and it ruminate all the time. You know, I end up saying things in my own head that I wouldn't tolerate anyone else saying to me, and they were continuous. And initially I had no way to beat them. So They were there all the time. So just prior to the confrontation, I was having exactly the same thoughts. Yeah. And after the, the removal, they were just reinforced. Mm. See, you are right, you are useless, you weren't mm. any good. You've been caught out, uh, on and on it
0: goes. So you went in to get some help. You were in there for uh, in the first instance a couple of weeks, and then you came out. And what was that like for you after that?
1: Uh, it, it was okay, but uh, the work, the, the anxiety about work, uh, going into into large meetings, uh, uh, so, socialising with large groups. I withdrew from all the business commitments I had. I withdrew, withdrew from social commitments. So I started to withdraw. Um, I was some 20 years into the second marriage at that stage i had a child who was uh, just at the end of his schooling um i had a feeling that they didn't understand the process either you know why are you behaving like this and so forth so after i was removed from the project it became even worse you know what have you done to yourself you you, sh- you should have done it better you're good at what you do but you buggered this one up um, and trying to get another job was was very difficult. Um, first of all, because the industry I was in, uh, it was fairly tight. There were only a dozen or so people that worked in the same scale of work that I did. So everyone knew I'd been remu- removed mm-hmm. and everyone knew it was because of uh, an irrational uh, conversation of, of sorts. Um, my age, because I was in my early 60s at that stage... Uh, Uh, was a bit of a problem of getting another job. But in reality, the big one was my own self-defeating attitude. Uh, Lots of people came and offered help because I was well-known in the industry. Lots of offerings of of positions, not a senior, but a a way of staying in the industry. And I just knocked them all back. I I withdrew and withdrew until, in the end of the day, after being out of the industry for long enough uh, now, and with the advancement of the years, it's now impossible.
0: The offers stop coming. Uh, the offers stop it, coming. Offers, mm, it, mm. It, it,
1: it's interesting when, when you're in that, uh, that level of depression, the, the people who generally want to help you, they, they offer once, you knock them back. They offer again, you knock them back. They offer a third time and you think up more excuses and knock them back. They don't come back again. Yeah, And it reinforces your... I'm hopeless. See, no one cares. No mm. one rings me anymore. No one does anything. Mm. The reason they don't is
0: because you push them away. When did suicide ideation first appear for you? It first appeared after I, after I
1: lost my job, as uh, I was lost for things to do. In fact, being honest, I was spending a lot of time in bed prior to that. But now I. Getting out of bed was for no reason at all because I had nowhere to go. And I lost my identity. I, you know, I was Graham, a senior man in the construction industry, and now I was Graham, nothing to do. Uh, so.
0: Had you separated from your partner at this particular point? No, of I hadn't. Time? I, okay. I, 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 was still, I was still. So uh, you still had a family I still
1: structure had a family, around you? Yeah, right. But But uh, it, it was a tough environment. Uh, uh, they were very much pull your socks up get on with life get out there and get another job what's wrong mm. with you you know you used to be strong now you're weak uh, so you know weakness of character all of those sorts of issues where if I could have I would have but I
0: just I couldn't move I was I was frozen almost um, and is it true you don't wear socks now because of that <laughs> it is true because I of I that wore, ideology I've worn
1: socks for eight years now so I can't pull my socks up
0: there yeah. you go Uh, yeah.
1: uh but what happened with that is it caused an enormous tension in the household because of this this conflict and and a lack of understanding in reality that I was seriously ill. But the, even the fact that the pressure was an illness, I don't think, was accepted. So uh, you know, it was just there's nothing wrong with you. So,
0: Does that surprise you now? Like you know, it almost feels like there's there's so much education out there now about. Depression and anxiety, and it's so commonplace and to a large degree normalized now in, in, in society that your own family didn't really recognize what was happening to you or didn't so, want to acknowledge what was happening to you? Uh, this was
1: eight odd years ago, so okay. there's a timing difference. But I think even now, uh, there's still a lot of people out there that don't believe it's a real illness. Mm. Uh, they think, you know, you're just a little sad, a little lonely for a while. Uh, that really uh, it, it is a weakness, uh, you know, toughen up. Uh, that attitude is, is still very strong out there. We're making big inroads with the sorts of work that, that you do with, with roses, uh, and I also speak for Beyond Blue, uh, going out and showing the message that it doesn't discriminate. Depression, anxiety is, is, is widespread. It is common. Uh, it can be treated uh, and managed. Uh, and therefore people are now starting a conversation on mental health It's much more accepted. Eight years ago, there, there wasn't a lot of that conversation. In fact, um, if you go to the, the business, the, the guy that removed me had no understanding of it at all, how to treat someone in the workplace uh, who's obviously suffering. Uh, you don't sack them and throw them out of the office in two hours.
0: Mm. You've got three daughters? I have three children from my first children. And I have one child from the same. Four, okay. And the conversation with them now about where you're at and the impact that depression and anxiety has had on your life, is that a common conversation that you would have with members of your family? Uh, it, it was difficult. When it, when, when I first uh,
1: survived my suicide attempt, I was estranged from, from all of them. Uh, so my second wife, uh, who, who had already run away with her her new partner uh, and was trying to get me out of the house and him in. Uh, My son of that marriage, because I scared the hell out of him, I traumatised him, and the three children and the wife of my first marriage, I was basically estranged from, in any case, but this
0: just added to it. So uh, not only did I feel alone, I was alone. Yeah. And that's a a common issue for men and suicide in this country, isn't it? That many many of the men that die from suicide, well, the statistics tell us that four out of the six that pass away every day by suicide, it has some form of relational background or relational issue attached to it.
1: Yeah, the the, the second trigger for me and and my thoughts of suicide was when the second marriage broke down. Uh, And it broke down because uh, she had gone and found an old friend who, who gave us some solace uh, and they ended up in a relationship uh, and uh, then I found out about the relationship or I was told about it and she wanted me out and him in. That was, was the second trigger that really pushed me over the edge. So I'd, I'd lost my job, now I was losing my family and it was all because I wasn't well and I was useless. Uh, so I had no sense of worth no one wanted me around I believed there's no point in me being there uh, I'd be better off dead
0: you planned the attempt on your life
1: uh, yes mine was planned methodically in fact uh, I even rehearsed parts of it prior to doing it um, unlike a lot that I've heard of I wasn't drug infected I wasn't drunk at the time it was all very orderly I was out of control I was irrational uh, as I drove from our house to our holiday house, where I planned to do it, I had the same song on the radio, and it was blaring away at me, and I'd play it again and again, so I, I, I was in a, another space, uh, but
0: I was in control. you remember what that song was?
1: I can't. It was a James Blunt song. I can't remember the name of it, but, but it had a, a repeating bit that went, I'm feeling hollow. Okay. Uh, and it was a feeling of hollowness. That mm, so that the, spoke to you? That spoke to me, mm. plus some of the words in the song related. But it was, it was that feeling of deep despair, hollowness, nothing in there, gutted, gone,
0: uh, uh, that did it. I haven't played a lot since, so I can't remember. it. So tell us about that day. You've mentioned that you drove to the Holiday House, but you'd put a plan in place and tell us about the day where you decided that that was going to be the day for you? Uh,
1: it, it, it was all very calculated, very orderly. Um, and I sat at the, at the dining room table and I wrote suicide notes uh, to maybe 10 people. Uh, and they're all written fairly orderly uh, in my own mind. Now I get a chance to read back on them and they were a bit dribbly and, and irrational, but uh, but they, they were orderly and, and I folded them up neatly and I put them into envelopes and I dressed them and I left them in a nice a neat, neat pile on the table. Uh, and then I decided uh, just to keep things neat and orderly again uh, rather than being lost for ages down there, I'd, I'd let them know where I was. So I went to the landline there and rang my mobile, which I didn't have with me. Uh, and I said, if anyone's looking for me at the holiday house, uh, and and then wandered off. Why did you do that? To, to keep things neat and tidy a bit. I think also uh, to lessen their distress. Uh, so so you didn't need to worry people, where you were. People wouldn't be running around mm-hmm. looking for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I could be found reasonably early, uh, those sorts of reasons, I think, were behind it. It was, it was, to tie it up in in a neat little package. Huh?
0: So you rang your mobile, left a message on your own mobile, which you'd left at home and didn't take with you. Intentionally, didn't take with me. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. And uh, you went to the holiday house. You made an attempt. Um, tell us a little bit about the aftermath of of that.
1: Uh, although I, I I thought about it a lot. And as I said I'd fact rehearsed parts of it. When it happened, I reacted against it. I really struggled to reverse the process. Uh, and
0: was that one of those moments as people talk about where they say, you know what, I've just done something, but I don't want to do this? Yes, it's a, it's a classic.
1: There's a fantastic TED talk by a, a American policeman who patrols the Golden Gate Bridge, uh, and he has brought a lot of people back who are standing on the bridge and, and contemplating, jumping. Uh, but there are some survivors uh, and he and their stories match up. The moment they let go of his hand, they wish they hadn't mm. and survivors of, of that too. So there's there's a point, I don't know if it happens for everyone, that you go, oh, I shouldn't be doing this. As much as I was committed to it, whatever, no. And it's, it's after the event. Now, a, a, a lot of people don't have the opportunity because it's instant. Uh, in my case, I I had the opportunity to to struggle, and then a miracle occurs. A weird and wonderful thing happened. I heard this voice say, "I I guess you, you you're surprised to
0: see us here." This was a local policeman that that it, literally lived, or or their their station was round the corner. How, how the corner. did they How did they know where you
1: were? Uh, circumstances got me on this one because I'd left my mobile phone behind but I'd left a message that I was uh, about to, to, to kill myself. Um, the, they, my family had contacted the police in Melbourne and they'd asked the question about the phone, so it's fairly common for people not being able to be contacted. And I said, yes, it was there. So the police took the phone. They well, also asked uh, if there was any likely spots that it might happen and suggested the holiday house. So local police had been to the holiday house, but they got there before I was. So when the message was left on my mobile, uh, they knew where the holiday house was. They'd been there only half an hour before and are only three or four minutes away. So they got there in time enough to save me.
0: A lot of people experience different emotions. Um after uh, making an attempt and surviving. Can you remember what your emotional state was? Was it a a state of relief? Was it a state of uh, anger or guilt? Or what were some of those emotions that were prevalent? Uh,
1: It it, it was one of relief. Uh, It was almost a purging. I mean, after it happened, I said, well, thanks for that, guys. I'll drive home now. Uh, The answer to that was, you're not driving anywhere (laughs) Uh, because... uh, we have a duty of care and, and we're not having you in a, in a car accident on the way home. Uh, but, yeah, no, it's, it's like it, it had gone, at least for that while. So I, 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 the urge had, had been removed because I'd had that, I don't want to do it. So I'd, I'd had to switch only just before. So now I
0: was in the frame of, I, I want to survive. Well, that was eight years ago. Has it ever has suicide ideation ever appeared again since that point? Like, how definitive was that switch, that moment? Uh, it was
1: reasonably definitive on on taking action, uh, but uh, suicide ideation uh, has reappeared. It's reappeared on a number of occasions. Uh, I'm more aware of it now, and I have a lot of tools in, to 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 compete with it uh, and, and, and to win against it. I, I I now know uh, when it happens how not to react to it uh, and it, in the last three or four years uh, with the regime of therapy I've been on, uh,
0: it's almost gone completely. What would you advise someone to do who's experiencing, who may be listening to this podcast, is experiencing suicide ideation and you talk about now having that scaffolding or those coping mechanisms in place and recognising what's happening to you and what you need to do about it. What advice would you give to someone else who's looking for those same coping mechanisms and and doesn't really know how to handle it at this point in time?
1: The first and obvious one is that the first signs of depression of mental illness to go and seek help. Seek help early. I didn't. I let it build on layer on layer on layer for probably two years before... Before it was Uh, the the second one is to is to be aware of the triggers Uh, and I had two obvious ones loss of job loss of family Uh, they are very big triggers uh, to it Uh, so make sure you've got the right sort of people around you when both of those happen Uh, look after yourself so make sure that you're in safe places Um, when I I finally got back to Melbourne after mine through uh, a, a number of fumblings and some inept uh, attempts at treatment by uh, government authorities because I was now... My name was on the list because I'd been saved by policemen. Uh, I ended up back in my old clinic under, in, in their intensive care unit. And although I didn't much want to be back there, it's not the greatest place in the world to be in a private psychiatric clinic... I felt safe, uh, and I felt safe for the first time. I felt safe against myself. So one of the real advices is to find a safe spot uh, where other people are in control and you're not. Uh, And for me, uh, one of the the worst places in the world to be was inside a psychiatric clinic, but it was a safe place for
0: me. Mm. I remember in my conversations with you previously, you're a big advocate for acceptance and commitment therapy for ACT, and you attribute the process of working within ACT as being very significant to your now mental well-being. Do you wanted to just tell us a little bit about how ACT has influenced
1: Yeah, to, to start how, how I got there,
0: I, I, I had
1: been just prescribed um, a number of, antidepressants, uh, and we couldn't find one that works for me. In fact, at the end of the day, I was on a bit of a cocktail. I had a number of them. Uh, and we decided we'd remove me from those and put me on a very old one that wasn't commonly used anymore, but maybe it if, 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 if was the one that would help me. So they put me in, in the hospital and they weaned me off all the drugs I was on. Uh, and I remember at the end of that the first week, when I got over the, the urges again, I, my doctor came in and I said, I'm cured." He what do you mean? I said, look, no more shaking hands, no more pains in the chest, no more f- feelings in the tummy, uh, you know, the, the headaches have gone, the, the zinginess in the brain, I had this terrible zinging sound that used to wander through my brain on a regular basis. And the answer to that was, no, you're not cured, they're just the side effects of the drugs you have been on. And I said, well, if this is it, I, I want to stay here. Mm. They said, but mm. you leave yourself vulnerable. Mm. To another uh, decline a serious decline uh, and he said to me oh, I'd also had in, in the process uh, three bouts of ECT treatment and they're usually eight I got ten so I ended up with 30 ECT shots um, both drugs and ECT are really helpful they work for lots and lots of people uh, they're very successful just in my case, unfortunately, they didn't work for me. So we couldn't find the bit that worked for me. Uh, and at this point, my doctor said to me, have you thought about ACT? Uh, I had read a lot about my illness. I thought, if I'm going to be ill, I might as well know about it. So I had a, a whole library of, of books, Andrew Solomon's, The, the Noonday Demon, which is a sort of the layperson's book on depression. They were all there. Uh, And he said, there's a good book on act by Dr. Russ Harris called The Happiness Trap. And I said, yeah, I own that. But it's just another self-help book. And if I read another self-help book, I'll go go mad because they all lead to nowhere. They lead to to, to dead ends. Uh, But I said, I'll give it a try. And I went home. And it wasn't a self-help book. It was a serious book about a new therapy. Uh, And I picked it up and read it. And, bing, the light bulb went off. This was it. It started to make sense to me, and, and I could see a way out. So I'm a devotee now of, of, of ACT, uh, and ACT's a, a drug-free approach. Uh, mindfulness is a, a very important part of it, so being in the present, not spending your whole life thinking about how miserable life had been before then, and you usually only remember the bad stuff, or thinking it's going to be terrible forever, because that's the connection we make. Life's been miserable, here I am, I've been suffering very badly from mental illness, I've had an attempt to take my own life. What's going to happen? It's going to be like that forever. It's not getting that, it better. That's mm. the mindset. Mm. Uh, and then someone says to you, but how are you feeling now? And you go, oh, I'm okay, now I'm doing okay. So that's 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 the key to it. And then there's lots of others, being able to beat the ruminations, uh, understanding that your thoughts are only words in your head, uh, You don't have to pay attention to them. Uh, You can move them on. After you've acknowledged them, you can move them on. So it's not an avoidance technique. You're not trying to hide from it. You're accepting it. That's the basis of it. Uh, And there's a a fantastic golden rule about thoughts. It doesn't matter if they're true or false or right or wrong. Uh, The only thing to worry about, are they helpful or unhelpful? And if they're unhelpful, move them on. Uh, And value-based living. So what's important to you? If there's a fire at your house, what would you grab? Uh, you know, if there was some catastrophe, where would you go? And those sorts of things uh, that are very close to your heart, the things that you value in life. And everyone has different values that they live by. Uh, when you're deep in depression, you're not living by your values. Uh, you're doing things that otherwise you wouldn't. So if you go back to those, and if in my case, uh, I used to value being fit. I used to value uh, exercise, uh, looking after my health. Uh, And in the last four or five years before that, I hadn't. Mm. I was overweight. I Mm. was eating rubbish food. I was drinking too much alcohol. Mm. So every time I started to do something, I'd go, is is this in line with my values? And when I started to feel bad, I knew I could go
0: and do something that made me feel good, go out there and exercise.
1: Yeah. Mm.
0: Some great lessons and um, some challenging things for people. Well, it's been wonderful having a chat, mate. There's a couple of questions that we always ask at the end of um, a Rose's Radio podcast, and I'm interested in your view of the world. What do we need to change in the way that society deals with suicide, in your opinion?
1: Uh, we, need, we need to remove the stigma from it. We need we need for people uh, to understand, first of all, that mental illness is real, uh, that having a conversation about mental illness, although difficult, uh, should be commonplace. We need to get to the point where mental illness is treated like physical illness uh, and therefore, you know, if someone's got cancer, people rally around them and look after them and they go through proper treatments and they, they, they survive or not. Uh, people shouldn't walk away from mental illness. They should be happy to discuss it, work with it, uh, and, and allow things, things to happen. Uh, also, there's, there's, a, there's a second stigma. The real stigma is at the other end. Uh, after there is a recovery, uh, and I'd like to say cure, uh, but even within the mental health argument, they, they don't use the word cure, they use the word managed. So, uh, and that's very sad. But when you've recovered, uh, people have to accept that there is a recovery. In my case, trying to get back to work. Every time I made an approach, people would say, we'd love to Graham, but we put you under a bit of pressure, you might fall apart again. So, people accepting that you can recover from it and you can go and live a normal and
0: everyday life. Which kind of connects really nicely into the second question, which is if you had a message you'd like to put out to those who are grappling with suicide right now, whether it's um, suicide ideation or caring for someone who might be suicidal um, or even being bereaved, what would be the key message that you, that from your story, that you would like to get out to those people?
1: Um, gather the right people around you. Seek help early. But it could be medical help or it could be personal help or it could be safe places. Uh, open up and don't hold it in. Tell people what you feel. Uh, my message to people that are, that are looking after them is that don't be judgmental. Uh, do a lot of listening. The worst thing that someone who's feeling bad can hear is, I know how you feel, because they don't know how you feel. Uh, uh, Or say, oh, I've been like that and I got over it by doing this. Uh, Those sorts of advices are are unhelpful. Open conversation. Ask them questions. Listen to their answers. Encourage them to seek help. Uh, Don't try... You're not there as a a friend or as a listener uh, to be a clinician. You're not there to cure them, you're there to give them assistance, give them comfort, give them compassion, show empathy towards their illness, and encourage them and work with them as they go through the path of recovery.
0: You always bring uh, great insights and wisdom to our conversations, Graham. Thank you so much for being part of Rose's Radio today. I'm sure that there are many people out there that are going to take enormous. Uh, amount of information um, away from the discussion today and we've really appreciated how open and vulnerable you've been and transparent with your story and uh, we wish you all the best for the future. Thank you very much.
1: It's just the way of the world When your heart's heavy I, I will lift
0: it for you Don't give up in conclusion we remember those we have lost to suicide and we acknowledge the suffering that suicide brings when it touches our lives we need to provide for all people a future that inspires and empowers individuals and communities and is filled with hope and meaning if you or someone that you know needs support you should contact lifeline a phone and online crisis support network the suicide callback service which provides professional counseling for those who are affected by suicide men's line australia or the kids helpline which works with children and teenagers from age 5 to 25 offering phone web and email counseling and information for parents in the event that you might like to assist the work of roses in the ocean and their Voices of Insight Speakers hub through speaking engagements in the local community, then please make contact with Roses in the Ocean on www.rosesintheocean.com.au or 1-300-411-461. Hey, thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to bringing you other inspiring stories from those with a suicide lived experience i